Welcome back to the Research VR Podcast, everyone. The podcast behind the science and design of virtual reality. I am your host, Oz Balabanian, and with me today is special guest, Anshul Sog, analyst at More Insights and Strategy. Hi, Anshul. Hi, hi. How's it going? Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. And unfortunately, we do not have our usual co-host, Peter, joining in from Germany. He is currently on a train, and uh, he's complained about train Wi-Fi a lot, <laughs> so we won't be able to join us. But no worries, I think this is going to be a fun conversation. Um, this is going to be kind of the start of a series that I want to start doing, kind of go- going a little bit beyond the science and design of virtual reality that we like to cover, and by inviting people like you, analysts that really kind of know industries really well, like top to bottom, uh, and can we can talk about kind of the business of what is going on in these in these industries, how they relate to the grant the bigger industries, um, how some of the news that's been happening around uh, the, like this month and how that affects smaller industries like VR. Because um, I know a lot of our audience, like our developers, their designers, they really like to sometimes that you know people are tunnel visual tunnel visioned into their work and into you know their their app and right. it's hard it's easy to kind of forget like what is going on on the broader scale and how those affect us so anyway before we go into all of those things uh, Anshel, can you tell us a little bit about yourself your background sure. um and kind of how you ended up here yeah so i'm i'm an analyst uh, at more insights and strategy and i cover a couple areas. Uh, most of them are consumer-based tech, but some of them are also commercial. Um, most of them are client-based in that um, it's the end user that I focus on. Um, so I cover smartphones, I cover PCs, um, I also cover AR and VR. Um, another area is wireless, specifically around like 4G, 5G. Um, I also cover some of the Bluetooth and Wi-Fi stuff. And uh, I also cover a lot of the PC gaming related stuff as well, and, and especially like when it comes to hardware. Um, but yeah, like I, I came from um, humble backgrounds. Um, I was a I've been a PC gamer since I was five. Um, my <laughs> dad worked my dad worked in the IT industry, and that kind of rubbed off on me. And then um, I started, you know, working at a small prototype design firm when I was in. Uh, high school and then that internship turned into a real job and then i worked for a, a computer hardware manufacturer and then i started my own like computer hardware reviews and news website and um it was called bright set of news and i did that for five years and then um i kind of transitioned the entire company or not the company but the publication became more mobile focused uh when i started seeing that mobile started to take off around 2009 2010 and um, towards the tail end, I started covering VR a little bit, um, which would have been around 2013, 2014. And um, yeah, it was it was really interesting. And, you know, I got to try out the DK1 and all those things. And I wasn't 100% sold on it. But once I tried the one of the first, first prototype vibes, I knew that, you know, there was something to be had. And that's why I started covering it as an analyst. Thankfully, that happened early in my career so I could take the risk. Um, but yeah, now I cover AR and VR pretty extensively. Um, I've written numerous white papers in almost area of almost all the areas of coverage that I, um, I cover now. So I've done something on PC hardware. I've done something on AR. I've done something on VR. I've done something on 5G. So yeah, I, you know, I, I spend a lot of time tweeting. Um, I also write blogs for, um, 
for like upload and for Forbes. Most of my 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 blogs will end up on Forbes, and um, I do guest blogs from here here and there sometimes. Um, and then I have you know some clients that are companies in the industry, um, but pretty much almost everybody at this certain point has been become a client. And because of that, we get, you know, I, as an analyst, I get more access than I would have if I was a journalist. But I'm also, with this added access, I also have to sign NDAs. And there's things I can know, but I can't talk about. And, you know, you know, when journalists get things on background, you know, it's to give them, you know, more perspective. But everything I'm given is on background and I get the full perspective. So it helps me you know, understand the industry and why certain companies make certain decisions, but I can't always talk about it, which is difficult for some people. But yeah, it's it's been fun. It's been fun and I, I really enjoy it. So, I mean, kind of building off of these industries that you've been covering, starting with PCs to mobile to VR, uh, I mean, I guess I can draw a clear line through there. Um, would you say... Uh, I think one of the most interesting things that I have learned over the past couple of years is how derivative technology is and how certain industries suddenly can splinter off and create its own sub, I wouldn't say subcategories, but perhaps uh, components that become cheap because of a certain industry start uh, and create a new whole new industry. So I'm, I'm thinking drones and VR are derivatives of mobile technology. And perhaps mobile technology was a derivative of PC tech. Is 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 that a like a a good comparison? It's it's complicated, but basically, it, the the interesting thing is I think VR actually took off because of mobile, and the reason why I say that is because VR the cost of displays in VR was directly related to the cost of displays in smartphones. And by driving down the cost of smartphone displays, you're able to put a smartphone display in a VR headset. Maybe it's not fully cost optimized, but you were able to finally get something where a consumer could actually own it. Because before that, you there just weren't displays that would fit in that kind of a headset at a reasonable cost. Um, and, and then on top of that, dense yeah. either. Like yeah. right, that was that was and then huge. Some of the other interesting people... tech is like uh, you know. A lot of the 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 uh, head tracking technology that is done inside out, so like the inside out tracking, some of that actually was derived from drones. So the uh, visual inertial odometry that's used in a lot of the headsets today to do six off originally came from drones because they were doing it for object avoidance. So there's a lot of cool tech that's kind of borrowing from each other to make things like AR and VR possible, and Without it, one, the cost wouldn't be there, and two, you wouldn't have the the technology to begin with. So yeah, there's a lot of borrowing. I, I like that idea, actually. It's it's not just the derivatives from a bigger industry like mobile, but the smaller deri- derived industries have shared technology. Like, yes, yeah, Slam and Sixdoff positional tracking, very similar technology. Uh, another actually another component is video streaming uh, with drones like drones, you you know, as the operator, you need to have a very low latency, high resolution video that's being streamed to the controller, especially in the camera drones. Um, that technology kind of is now derived into wireless headsets. Uh, I think TPcast 
even though it's it's a different bandwidth that they're using, like um, the 60 gigahertz or 50 gigahertz bandwidth. So there's an interesting thing with that, too. So when it comes to the wireless tech on these wireless headsets, so 60 gigahertz, that's been around for a while. But YGIG specifically is a standard and it uses 60 gig Wi-Fi, which was originally developed for PCs way back, I don't know, five or six years ago, but it never really took off. Uh, and then they tried mm. to miniaturize it for mobile. So initially it was too big to fit in a mobile headset. So then they made it smaller for mobile, which then made it small enough for VR. So you now have a PC technology that was then waterfalled into a mobile technology, which then waterfalled into a VR technology. So that actually kind of follows the, the, the cadence you were talking about of, you know, PC to smartphone to VR. But there's so many different components of VR that come from different places that if you know where they came from, it makes total sense and you understand how it works and you kind of get how it, how it benefits. But like, you know, initially 60 gigahertz had problems because um, there wasn't enough propagation. So what happened is if you just turned away from the antenna and your antenna was on the front of your face, you would just lose signal. And that's not acceptable, mm -hmm. right? So they started to figure out like, okay, how do we do bounces? How do we do with propagation? We're going to clearly need multiple antennas. Because like right now, there are no single antenna uh, VR headsets. They're all multi-antenna because one antenna is not enough to prevent occlusion because occlusion is still an issue. So that's why a lot of the, you know, like the HTC one looks like an antenna, right? Because you've got right. two different, um, two different arrays of um, 60 gigahertz antennas to make sure you keep that constant experience, the constant signal going. And I think the, the golden, mm. the golden achievement would be to do one antenna or one antenna array. And that would also optimize cost and improve battery life. Cause then you wouldn't have to drive as much, you know, wireless tech or at oh. least wireless antennas on the, on the front end. Um, so yeah, that I think sense. Yeah, I think there's so much that's kind of just borrowed and, and evolved and improved upon. Um, I guess building off of what I know about how to set up routers and like, you know, multi antennas on routers, uh, I've been told to have, let's say if it's two antennas, one to be at 90 degrees and one to be vertical to kind of have like perpendicular antennas because the, from what I know, like the receiving antennas, right? Yeah, there's the receivers on your phone or your laptop. Uh, depending on what orientation they're in, whether you're on in your bed or standing up or sitting up, um, they have, I guess, different like transmission rates or like probably better reception. Um, so which is why I set up like the antennas and routers at different angles. W wouldn't you think that maybe like the antennas on wireless headsets will also, I mean, wouldn't they benefit from having uh, different angles or would that look aesthetically really weird? And the physics uh, of 60 sense? gigahertz and the physics of the antennas probably would not would not benefit because in order for so one of the reasons one of the problems initially that they had with these millimeter wave technologies which is what you refer to with with you know anything above about above like about six gigahertz anything above six gigahertz is kind of in the millimeter wave spectrum so millimeter wave is technically six gigahertz like up to like uh, 300 gigahertz or whatever the top end is um but 60 gigahertz is considered millimeter wave. So you actually don't need a very large antenna. You actually need a small antenna. But the problem is one antenna is not enough. So what happens is you build an array of like six or 12 or 15 antennas or antennae in one module 
And what that allows you to do is it allows you to beam form, which is what makes routers today good, but it also is necess absolutely necessary for high frequency because you're able to essentially bend the beam in a way to optimize signal. And that's why you don't need to have to change the angle of your antenna because you're beam forming. And essentially, um, as long as the antennas point away from your head, you should be okay. Um, right. Because if they point towards your head, then your your head's blocking the signal. Um, so you just have to point out. And then the beam forming will take care of the rest. And there's a lot of really intelligent beam forming alg algorithms out there to optimize for the right antenna and the right beam forming to make sure that the transmitter and the receivers are, you know, in optimal um, frequency and range. But yeah, it's That's it's all about optimizing signal strength and 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 throughput. And, and and I guess and comparing that to like battery consumption and and heat, right? And trying to minimize that while yeah, still retaining that's a factor. performance. Yeah. I mean, the thing yeah. is, they, they uh, actually balance different types of Wi-Fi technology based on power consumption. So they will, they'll like hop around. So like, if you look in the future generation of, uh, you know, headsets, you're actually not going to see all of it be uh, 60 gigahertz. What you'll see is it'll be a blend of 60, uh, which is 11A, what future generation will be called 11AY. And then it, there will also mm -hmm. be 11ax, which is the lower frequency stuff, but it's still low latency enough and high and high enough bandwidth that it can still give you a solid signal. And then if you don't have those, then you have you know, actually it's just ay and ax because ax kind of gobbles everything else up. So yeah, having a dual mode ay ax headset is the future of a wireless VR headset. Are we currently on was it ad? Is that the current generation in routers? Yeah, so AD is for 60 gigahertz and AC is for 5. And then you will have AX, which will replace both 2.4 and 5. Um, and it'll bring in some of the cellular technology from smartphones into uh, the Wi-Fi router space. So once again, smartphones are influencing routers, which are influencing VR headsets. Yeah, that's so cool. That's very, very cool. You can I can imagine maybe uh, at a certain point in a, in a few years, maybe routers... Maybe like routers actually will be a much bigger part of like wireless uh, video transmission, whether it's 100%. for VR headsets or maybe or, or perhaps even for like Apple TVs and Chromecasts. Already like, happening. You know, we. Oh, is it? Yeah. So basically, a lot of the operators. So like, so this is the beauty of me being in so many different places at once. I kind of see everything happening and converging. Um, so what's happening is actually that, um, you know, mesh routers like Google Wi-Fi, right? So mm -hmm. those originally were just sold to consumers by Google and a couple other companies like Eero and all the Eero, other ones, right? Yeah. So what happened is companies like Comcast and Charter realized, wow, like this is going to help improve our coverage. So we're going to implement this and like we'll just give it to our consumers straight off. There's no more router modem. It's all one device in these little pucks go around your house. And what they also realized... Like Xfinity kind of does, right? Exactly. So I think the, the, the Cox guys call it panoramic Wi-Fi. That's their marketing term for it. <laughs> um, and the interesting thing is they also realize, okay, all your IPTV, all your gaming, all your phone calls are all going over Wi-Fi and through your home internet connection now. So if they're your ISP, they want to understand and, and have control over your internet connection. 
because that's where everything is going through. So a lot of these companies are now, you know, working on optimizing routers for video transmission, for gaming. So you have gaming branded routers already. And then you have a lot of routers nowadays are already optimized for streaming to basically create a separate, you know, um, dedicated amount of bandwidth just for Netflix. And a lot of routers right. have that already. So it's totally happening. And I, it's a matter of time until it happens for VR headsets as well. Mm. Once the market gets big yeah, enough, that is, that'll be it. That is so fascinating. Um, in terms of gaming, I think, I don't know. I'll have to look this up and if, see if it was actually something that I read in an article. But it, I'm, uh, but I recall reading that Microsoft was saying that perhaps the next generation console might be the last physical console that they'll build that is a uh, local uh, rendering machine. And where things are going, it's. I mean, you know, we've we've heard about it for quite a well, it's quite some time. I think even from two thousand six or two thousand seven with a company called like On Live. Yeah, exactly. Um, I remember our Gaikai, which got bought by Sony. Right. I remember being so stoked, you know, being a little kid in like middle school or something. We're like, wow, like we're going to be able to stream gaming. And and I think at this point, NVIDIA has a beta uh, product out. Uh, GeForce Now. GeForce Now that you can use to stream. It's been around for a long time, too. Okay. So <laughs> I've used it since like Gen 1. So clearly it's much more. It's it's not that, that the technology doesn't exist. It's been much more of a how widespread the infrastructure is to handle these things and perhaps Microsoft is making a bet that in, in the, over the next seven years, the infrastructure will be competent enough that, you know, their the grand majority of their users will probably be able to have access to that. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. So here's the reason why I think Microsoft's doing it. Um, EA is already working on it. They've already announced that they're working on a service like that. Um, but basically what it amounts to is these companies have realize that especially microsoft that they're not making that much money on the consoles mm. because the console is really an enabling factor that brings content into your home and consumption right because if you look at microsoft like their business today is mostly driven by cloud consumption so if they turn the xbox into an even bigger cloud consuming service than it already is which is quite large um, then they're driving more Azure utilization, which drives profitability because their entire business today is essentially cloud, 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 cloud. Um, mm. And if you look at Amazon, like people don't realize this unless you really look at their financials. Most of Amazon's profitability is because of AWS. Yes. Like if you take right. away the AWS piece, they're losing a lot of money. But you add AWS to it, and they're like, you just added $4 billion in profitability. And you're like, okay, well, there we go. They're profitable now. So cloud is a massive component of what Microsoft is doing. And cloudifying the entire gaming experience will only increase that. Um, and it's, yeah. it's a similar model with Windows, I guess, mm -hmm. right? Like Because they, from the beginning, didn't want to control the hardware. And we're like, Let's, we'll commoditize the hardware, and we'll build the OS on top of that. And then developers will then build platforms. And then the OS or, got or, commoditized or by by Android. So nobody wanted to pay for an OS anymore. And then both Apple and Google, or both Apple and Microsoft effectively went, okay, well, we're just going to do everything else other than the OS. 
and charge for that. So Apple has the App Store and Apple has I mean, iTunes and and Apple Music and Microsoft has Office. And they have all these other services like Skype and things like that. So mm. so they're all looking for opportunities to drive usage um, of their own applications. And, you know, making Xbox gaming just a cloud service across everything would be great for Microsoft. One would think that maybe maybe when Microsoft was launching Xbox, why why didn't they go down a route of Windows? Why didn't they just make an OS that uh, Toshiba and Dell and other hardware manufacturers that they already work with actually build the consoles? Um, and they they've I mean kind of built the entire they've had a vertical integrate integration for Xbox, right? In, including the content itself, like first party content. Um, is that like not very Microsoft of them? No, I think I think it's because Microsoft has always had this internal stru- struggle within the company where you have Microsoft and Windows and PC gaming, which has been around forever. And then they introduced Xbox after PC gaming had already taken off and was already a, a, a thing. So it was essentially them trying to create their own self-controlled PC gaming experience using a Microsoft which is an Xbox, and then controlling the application environment so there's less piracy and being able to charge more money for the game. Right, that was a problem. I remember with PS2 PS2 eras, like growing up in Lebanon, I think all, all everyone that I knew, nobody had a Nintendo. Xbox didn't even exist in Lebanon. It was just PS2. And they're all pirated. Everyone had pirated cop- copies. Yeah. yeah, so even on the PC, um, it was even worse, right? Because back then, like, you know, Steam was a thing, but it wasn't like a huge deal. Um, but people were buying games and pirating games nonstop. And Microsoft, you know, they tried actually a long time ago. It was called Games for Windows. They tried to do a Windows mm-hmm. version of it, and it was so horribly implemented that it died mm-hmm. almost as quickly as it was launched. There's some backstory on, you know, I heard about how that happened and why it failed. So it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily poorly thought out. It was poorly executed, but maybe I'm, I'll leave it there. But it, the reality is, is that um, they kind of turned Xbox into their own PC gaming platform. And part of that was also because they saw Sony was very successful with the PlayStation. Um and I used to own a PlayStation. I had a PS1, um, but I also owned a PC. Like I've literally been a PC gamer almost my whole life. So for me, there was no really like going away from PC gaming. It was kind of like, well, they have these exclusives, so I'm going to play them. But I'm still going to play on my PC. So I did get end up getting an Xbox, but that was mostly just to play Halo, which was their entire goal, right? Um, and that was the other thing is you know creating these exclusives you know, creates a stickiness to the platform. So then you get other content developers to try and develop for your platform specifically, within, which then just grows it bigger and makes you more money. And that's kind of the strategy around the whole exclusivity thing, right? Um, and I think nowadays, if you look at it, even on the consoles, exclusivity is kind of weak, right? You look at all the exclusive titles for both consoles, you're kind of like, eh, it's kind of exclusive. Um, but it's usually timed a lot of the times yep. now, and, or especially with third party titles. And if you're and if you're willing to wait six months, you're going to get the game, 
which you're like, okay, I'm not going to even bother buying the other console. Then I'll just wait. And that's why I think getting this all the way back to VR, that's why I think VR is kind of, you know, had a really good year last year um, was because all these exclusive contracts kind of expired. And a lot of developers were able to create titles for other platforms. So now people can play with each other. There's a bigger player base for almost every single application. And there's a lot of cross-platform and people don't feel like they have to buy all the headsets to be able to play all the games, which I think is a big deal. Right. I will not. I, I think mean, I own it, them all, but that's my own fault. Right. <laughs> that's your job. But um, it's, it's funny seeing how uh, the audiences react to exclusives differently. I think this was interesting back in, especially 2016. Uh, I think for months people on Reddit were just like uh, trying to rail Oculus, you know, for having any sort of exclusive uh, content or games that were on, that was just on Oculus home and not on steam. Um, At the same time, looking at uh, other gaming communities, like they all cherish the, the exclusives that, you know, their platform has, Oh, you know, PlayStation, God of war, Halo, Xbox. Um, I like, do you think the difference in, in in the tone that people had or, or, or their reception to it is much more like or what, what would you attribute that to so i would say the reason why people reacted the way they did is because the pc gaming community which is primarily what has driven early vr adoption uh, is not used to exclusives they're like what is an exclusive right. like i don't understand what that is like why would you do that right. this is one platform like it's my pc you're just putting a different monitor on <laughs> and all of a sudden I have to right, right. have a separate like platform to run it. So it's like, and they got so used to having steam, which was their primary source of everything that they were, I mean, p- there were people who were upset about Uplay from Ubisoft and they were upset about, um, mm. you know, origin from EA. So there was backlash on those. But then when you take that and then you add a hardware tie into it, in addition to it being a software tie-in, people are going to be even angrier. Um, If you had presented that to console players as a solution, they wouldn't have thought anything of it because they're used to exclusives, which is why you don't really hear much about the PSVR people complaining about exclusives, right? Or, I mean, this is the only console with a VR headset. Yeah, actually. You know, they're kind of used to exclusives. They're just considered the way of life. You don't hear hear people complaining that, oh, that's a, just a, like you don't hear Rift and Vive people complaining that a title is only PSVR. You you know, I don't even know what really is being released on PSVR nowadays, uh, especially because I don't really play much games. I, I tend to follow the industry, but mm-hmm. I'm not much of the gamer. But so, yeah, that, that's a really interesting insight. It, it's, it's a totally different audience with a different expectation totally. coming from PC versus console. You know, I mean, five five or six years ago, uh, having not known any of the things that I do now, like, uh, and Cliff Blazinski is like one of the people that also said it, like, that people expected for PC gaming to die, but with the rise of, you know, the second generation or third generation uh, consoles with Xbox 360 and PS3. I never um, expected. I could have probably... All- well, so let, let's let's get into that in, into a little bit. I, I think you know a little bit more about it than I do. But like having seen the rise of numbers with with new people, new gamers coming into the space, mm-hmm. uh, I would have been like, yeah, it doesn't make sense. PCs kind of peaked their their sales peaked at twenty eleven. Uh, people don't expect PCs to be really selling as much anymore. Except for PC gaming to mobile. up. <laughs> So I guess you, if you, it's it's how you look at the numbers, right? It's rather than just looking at t- peak total sales of PCs, which included 
everyone that now use their phones instead of mm-hmm. PCs, but looking at maybe PC gaming, it never really uh, had a peak. It's 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 been growing. So the thing is, is that you know people look at the PC industry as a monolith when it's not right because the PC industry has continuously evolved, and there's subsegments of the PC industry. So you have you know you have laptops, you have desktops, then you have tablets, and then you have two-in-one convertibles, and then you have PC gaming over here, and then you have commercial. So there's so many different types of PCs, and you're going to see the same thing happening in smartphones. It's just as an as an industry evolves, it starts to sub-segment itself into specialized purposes, and that's what you're going to see with smartphones and eventually with VR headsets and AR headsets. How does that work with smartphones? I've never understood the niche markets for, for smartphones. Like... So right now, let's say you have iPhones, right? That's like the basic, simple, normal, whatever you want to call it, iPhone. Then you have, um, let's say, for example, the BlackBerry Key 2. That is the only phone that you can get that's pretty decent, that has a keyboard on it, right? That's already a specialized purpose. It's kind of a businessy phone. Then you have something like the Caterpillar S60, which has a thermal camera on it and environmental sensors, which is very specialized for, <laughs> for, for construction. And then you have um, the new gaming phones that are coming out in China. Those are specifically purposed for gaming because in China, a lot of people don't own consoles or PCs and their entire gaming experience is done on a phone. So why wouldn't you want to have a gaming phone if that's what you want to do on your phone the most? So you're starting to see the segmentation mm-hmm. already happening. And this is in the last year or two. So, you know, the way I see it with PC gaming is it was never going to die because PC gaming basically carved a niche out for itself in the whole gaming ecosystem. We have mobile, you have console, and you have PC. If you want the best gaming experience, you always get the PC. And that's kind of what's happened is NVIDIA, AMD, Intel uh, have all worked together to basically create the PC as this premium high-end gaming experience and as a result Mm. it also drove something like vr because without that premium vr wouldn't have been able to even become a thing so and vr a lot of those companies use vr as a opportunity to reiterate and confirm the premium experience that pc can deliver were there any companies that didn't see that vision in terms of PC gaming not dying and made the wrong bet and now like either missed um I'm thinking maybe Windows and, and Microsoft not owning Steam or you know you know what I mean yeah. like owning the well, actual I mean, uh the software side to game. So Microsoft has done very little in terms of PC gaming because they have Xbox. So they they seem they much more focused on Xbox than they are on PC gaming. So they, you know, they let Steam happen because a lot of people don't know this, but Valve is originally from Microsoft. They were the Microsoft gaming division and they turned into Valve. Yeah, they're all ex The original founders of Valve are mostly ex-Microsoft people. Um, so, I mean, they kind of missed that boat, um, but they're not the only ones. I mean, if you look at like some of the um, late adopters to PC gaming, like Lenovo didn't really have a PC gaming brand until a couple years ago. Um, and is that Razer? No, they, they have a partnership with Razer, but it's actually called Legion. Uh, that's their gaming brand. Um, I would also say that HP was a little late, 
but I wouldn't really say they were too late because they bought the whole voodoo business and then they kind of let it like die off and then they brought it back as Omen. Um, so they kind of played with PC gaming a little bit here and there. Um, and I would say, you know, it's a pretty considerable business for them now. It's multi-billion dollar business, I believe. So, you know, there's no question whether or not they, they understand the business. Um, but there's no doubt that like Dell was ahead of all of them in that because they bought Alienware so long ago and, um, they, they understood it. Some companies bought into PC gaming, but didn't particularly have much success in it. So, um, like OCZ, which was ended up going bankrupt and being bought by Toshiba, which also ended up, ended up going bankrupt. Um, they bought a company called Hypersonic, which is a boutique PC builder. Um, but the problem is, is that boutique PCs are so expensive. It's an even more niche part of a niche market. Um, Hmm. But a lot of these. What is a boutique PC? Yeah, a boutique PC is a custom-built PC that is essentially um, built to your specifications, um, with custom liquid cooling, custom paint jobs, and those are the kinds of PCs that people spend ten, twenty thousand dollars on if they want. Um, And right Hmm. now, there aren't very many boutique companies left, um, but there's still a few, like Main Gear and Origin. Um, and you'll see a lot of like the big PC streamers will have their computers because they're the coolest, the co- nicest, the fastest um, PCs around. Um, but these boutique companies were originally how a lot of the big PC vendors got into gaming. Hmm. Okay, so this is this is fascinating because I think based on what you know about how these uh, industries get commoditized, how w- w- let's let's paint a picture of what VR will look like. Maybe. Maybe let's stick to the P- the PC side without even touching mobile. We should talk about that too as well in terms of all-in-one headsets. But how do you how do you expect to see PC uh, or yeah PC-based VR headsets to be? Um, and I guess maybe using Windows mixed reality as like the first step towards commoditization as well. So I would say the commoditization to me feels like WinMR headsets that are built by these PC vendors. I feel like they've already commoditized it. Because you can go out and buy it for like 200 bucks. I think once you're right. under $200, you've effectively commoditized the technology. Um, because you no longer make it about price. Because people can be like, okay, yeah, 200 bucks. I can either buy right now or... Or brand, even. Right. And you have so many different brands right. doing it now, right? So it's not just one brand. It's like Acer. You've got Asus. You've got Lenovo. You've got Dell. They all look a little different, but they're basically the same thing. And I would consider that commoditized, right? Um, But I truly believe that the way I look at the VR market today, I don't see it as PC, mobile, standalone and all that. I kind of see it as one um, just because it's not quite large enough to split those out yet Um, because none of those are big enough on their own to really be a market you can focus on individually. Um, And that's why in your question, I see... I see standalone actually commoditizing VR because today, if you want to go out and buy a complete VR solution, the cheapest way is actually to get an Oculus Go. And I think that's the true commoditization of VR because if you were to go out and try and buy a smartphone and a headset, you're looking at six to 800 bucks. If you go out and want to buy a PC and a headset, you're still looking around 800 to a thousand dollars. So, that's still a lot of money. That's not commoditized to me. 
But when you look at 200 bucks yeah. and you just plop the thing on, that's commoditized to me. So I think standalone with smartphone SOCs or or custom SOCs for commoditized headsets like the XR1. Um, I actually see XR1 and something similar to it in a standalone headset being where we will go long term in terms of commoditization of VR. The, the, the XR1 being Qualcomm's newly announced SOC. Correct. Sorry, I did not explain that yeah so the xr1 is essentially qualcomm going and saying we're going to build a custom soc that takes out the things that smartphones don't need in vr and leave the things that we think are good for vr and will drive you know lower cost chips and help drive lower cost devices because i think we all assume that facebook is eating some cost on the um oculus go and part of that is because it's a smartphone chip um, and all the other components that are in it. But essentially, XR1 is designed to allow others other than Facebook to go and build these standalone headsets at that price point. Cool. And and I guess what uh, what are the next headsets that are going to be using the XR1? Is it would like would it would the Oculus? Uh, what is it? The Santa Cruz be one of those or the the next Vive Focus? No. Hmm. So so. Essentially, the XR1 is a what I consider the base-level VR chip. So I think there will be an XR2, an XR3, and, and so on and so forth. But right now, XR1 is kind of like, it's not the bottom. It's like the table, the, the base level. Like, you know, this is the table. So like the, the right. mobile stuff that we have prior to XR1, like, um, I don't know what's a good example. like um gear vr like 835 or eight. not even those are actually okay. so i'll explain it so 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 like old socs like 820 and below or even slower than 820 are like below this acceptable bar xr1 is kind of like where it's good enough and it will do all the things you want it to do like six dolphin slam and then you have the 835 mm. which is faster and it has all those capabilities. And then you have the 845, which is even faster and has all those capabilities. So essentially, they've tiered it out where XR1, because it's the first chip, they decided, okay, if we're going to do this custom chip, we have to build a chip that's going to be sold in the most possible headsets. And that's why it's down here at this, mm. this good level. It's not great or the greatest, but that's because they're not going to sell very many of these right now. They're going to be selling a lot of these. So they want to they wanna make a chip that's going to you know, create this good base level experience that's similar to the Oculus Go, uh, where it's reliable, it's it cost effective, and it can be put in a lot of headsets and not cost too much money. And that's why I think you're going to see it in all types of headsets. And the rumor is the new Hololens will have it. Right. Uh, that that's exactly where I want to tra transition into. Is I think Microsoft might actually. Even though they missed the mobile train, I think they're now so well positioned for this next spatial computing industry, especially on the HoloLens side of things, uh, with the next version coming out probably around next year. It'll probably still be a developer thing. Um, and with all the also Windows MR being, uh, uh, you know, tied into the same ecosystem. Is that, would you consider Microsoft to be kind of like the behemoth that we aren't really expecting to be extremely relevant over the next five to 10 years, but will be? No, I mean, I expect them to be because they've spent so much money and they've been very aggressive. And they, I mean, they pushed HoloLens out very early. And 
I mean, if you look at it today, a lot of people are still developing for HoloLens first. So, dude, it's still it's still the top of the line, like all in one AR yeah. headset. Like, <laughs> so so I, unless, I think the next generation yeah. is going to be a headset that's going to be much more affordable, partially because it has an XR one, which is going to help them do a lot of things that they don't have to do in custom hardware anymore, and it'll basically allow them to build a headset that's better than the previous generation, that's cheaper and sell to more people. And I think that's, you know, they don't want to miss the mo- they don't want to miss this X- XR train. And that's why they're being so aggressive because they miss the mobile train 100%. And I think that this is them saying we're committed and we're we're going to own this one way or another. Um they've already committed to the fact that they're not going to own gaming because they've essentially pawned that off to Steam VR. If you you know when you're in when you're in when MR, um, but they want to own mm. they want to own everything right. else, all the business applications which they haven't quite gotten to yeah. yet. It's not business ready yet from the companies I've talked to, but it's getting there. Um, but you know eventually they want to own the entire you know you and me interacting and us you know working together and collaborating right like uh, you know ultimately VR is right. the ultimate collaboration space. It's a medium. It's it's you know it's a different. It's a type of OS that is I think can encapsulate both mobile and win and already existing Windows. You know, it's it's even if it doesn't look exactly the way it, we it does now, or if it's not even immersive. I I think the immersion doesn't have to be that. It's the spatial computing aspect of it that that really opens things up. Yeah, and and they're working really hard on it to make it more spatial, and you know they keep evolving it, and they're you know they bought companies like Allspace to improve the collaboration aspect of things and and make it more social than it already is. So I think they're, they're, they're not to be underestimated. Um, and I think that they will be without a doubt, one of the major players other than, you know, companies like Facebook mm-hmm. and, and valve. And Anshel, how can people uh, find you and reach you and uh, find out a little bit more about what you're writing and what you think about? I think the easiest way to find me would probably be on Twitter, uh, which is just at Anshel Sog. Um, but yeah, I'm also on Forbes. Uh, I write white papers. We publish those on our website, moreinsightsandstrategy.com. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of everywhere. I'm on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. You know. I'm on here. So yeah, kind of everywhere. But Twitter's probably the easiest way to get Cool. <laughs> awesome. This has been a fascinating conversation. And uh, maybe we'll have you on again in like a year or so and, and to, to figure out what has happened in this in one year of innovation and, and what kind of predictions we can make kind of moving forward. Because it's uh, this is the stuff that I love uh, to talk about. Cool. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. and look forward to it again. All right. See you later. And thank you all for listening.